0: I wanna welcome you again and invite you to turn to uh, your Bibles and to open them to uh, Mark chapter four. We'll be picking back up in Mark's Gospel and we'll be looking at uh, verses 21 through 25. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open them because it's, uh, uh, earlier in the sermon, I'll put this passage in its context because I think the context actually shapes uh, how we understand what's happening in front of us. So Mark 4:21. Uh, And Jesus said to them is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest nor is anything secret except to come to light if anyone has ears to hear let him hear and he said to them pay attention to what you hear then with the measure that you use it it will then be measured to you And still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Amen. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall endure forever. Men and women will come and go, but your word is true. It is from everlasting to everlasting, and it is profitable for our salvation but it is also profitable for our sanctification father i pray that as we open up your word that you would be conforming us to the image of christ might our lives look like the one who saved us from sin might you do this by your spirit and through our time for jesus sake amen uh, brian laritz uh writes that something tra- tragic happened when he was 17 and he said that it, it really altered the course of his entire life. In case uh, many of you who don't know who Brian LaRitz is, he's a, uh, he was a pastor of Fellowship Memphis. In Memphis, it was a multi-ethnic church. He then moved to New York, and he's now pastoring a multi-ethnic church in California. And here's what he writes. So something that happened when he was 17. When I was 17, my dear friend Craig Tarleton collapsed and died of a heart attack while running around the track of our high school He, too, was 17, and prior to his death, I felt an uncommon urge to share my faith with him. Every day, I'd walk into our chemistry class, and it seemed as if God was grabbing me by my jacket, begging me and compelling me to share my faith with Craig, but I gave in to thoughts of rejection and told God that I would get to it later. Well, later never came. And so there I was sitting at his funeral. And for the first time, I was confronted with my own mortality. At 17, you never think about death. 17-year-olds think about what college they're going to go to, what they will score on the ACT, will she go to the prom with me, what they will do with their lives. But that day was different. I made a decision as I sat at my departed friend's funeral to get serious about sharing my faith. It was there, a few feet away from my friend's casket, that I gave in and decided to embrace what I believed was God's call on my life to preach the gospel." End quote. If you were to interview Brian Loritz, he would say that that moment was pivotal in his life, that being next to a casket and having opportunity, opportunity after opportunity to share his faith with a friend, uh, and that day never came. And he was experiencing more than just grief. I think there's a grief over death, but if you listen to him right, he's actually saying there was something deeper than just grieving the loss of my friend. I was grieving what I refused to do when my friend was alive. And if you were to ask him, that compelled him, and God used it to bring him into the gospel ministry. The question that I want to sort of put before us this morning is, uh, is that a healthy emotion that a 17-year-old Christian should feel? Now, why why am I asking, is that a healthy emotion? Because I think uh, some of us might address this 17-year-old kid if it were our own and say, well, baby, God is sovereign, you know, and you can't save everyone, right? And that might be a way that we would try to comfort uh, and, and, and I get it. I get what that parent might be trying to do is to push this thing towards the sovereignty of God. The problem when you push this thing all the way on the sovereignty of God, you, you undermine sort of human responsibility. Now, I'm not going to uh, pretend to know how these two things interact, but I do know that they do together. We might say, well, you can't save everyone. Well, if you listen to Brian... Brian says, well, I I knew the gospel, and all I needed to do was to open my mouth. The question I wanna ask us this morning is, could it be that a a principle and a person was at work in the life of that little 17-year-old boy that validates exactly what he was feeling? Maybe what he was feeling is is what believers ought to feel uh, in those moments where The Lord calls us to be courageous. He calls us to speak truth into darkness. He calls us to step up and to intervene in the midst of injustice. Maybe that feeling is there for a reason. And the case that I think our text makes today is, I think it's actually biblical. I think what what we're going to unpack in our passage is that there is a person who resides in the hearts of God's people namely the Holy Spirit, and there is a principle, an important principle that's at work that Jesus sort of lays out with his disciples that I think is important for us to understand this morning. And so the first thing I want us to look at is is this important principle, and I think you see this principle uh, in verses 21 through 23, and and I'm calling this an important family principle because if you look at this passage in its context— that, that Jesus really is building a new family, that his mother and his brothers and sisters, they, they don't get him. And in the midst when they are trying to get Jesus to come back home, Jesus says, well, who is my mother and my brother and my sisters? And, and they're, right, they're those right around him listening to him. And so he's building this new family. And then you, you get to the parable that we looked at last week. There's this great crowd around Jesus. And if you want to go there, look at chapter 4, verse, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into a boat, and he sat in the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea, and he was teaching them in parables. And so when you go back, you start to see that that, that, that parable was a parable on hearing. And so Jesus is building this new family. And what he does is, hey, this is an important family practice. If you're going to follow me, then you need to learn how to hear me. Now, here's what you learn in that passage. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. But did you notice that the great crowd never got full understanding? Look at what happened after Jesus tells the parable in 4 verse 10 And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those on the outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And look at verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And then Jesus unpacks What he just preached in verses 14 through 20. Now, 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 stay with me. The great crowd heard the preaching, but only a select few got the interpretation of the preaching. The great crowd heard the parable, but only a select few. The disciples and those with them were pulled to the side, and then Jesus gave them insider knowledge. Now, if you want to ask me what's going on in the passage, what I would say to you in the context of the passage, the disciples are privileged people, that where the kingdom is confusing to the crowds, where the family doesn't see Jesus for who he is, where he teaches in parables and people hear but don't hear, that is not true for the disciples, he is pulling them to the side and giving them insider knowledge. He's giving them an understanding that the world out there does not quite have at the moment. And so if you were to ask me who is privileged of everybody hearing and around Jesus in the gospel of Mark, it's not the crowds and it's not Jesus's earthly family. Those who are privileged to see Jesus in his glory and his splendor and his majesty, to see the kingdom and to understand it, it's those right around Jesus. They're privileged. Now, I know the moment I say "privilege," some of us think that we ought to do away with the word. And I disagree. Privilege is when, when, when certain benefits are accrued or given to others and not given to the rest. And so you might say that that's true in this passage. The disciples are given insight, while for everyone not near Jesus, they're still blinded. You're privileged. If you can get out of here and go get, a, get in your car and drive your own self home, And your license isn't revoked and your eyes still work and your hand and eye coordination still works and you can afford a car say what you want to say but you're privileged you're privileged if you can read and write because so many people can't read and write i mean think of what happens if we don't have teachers teachers are those who steward the privilege of education On a daily basis until they take our little kids who can't read and can't conjugate verbs and can't write and we move them to a place where they can then function in society. But until they get to that place, they are disadvantaged. Now, let's go back to the text. The disciples are privileged with seeing the kingdom. Now, we know from the rest of the Gospels, we'll get to this a little later, you might think that what Jesus wants to do is build this holy huddle. Let's get all the people who see the kingdom and let's get us in a room and let us gloat over all that we know and let us debate spiritual things and let us shut ourselves out from the rest of the world because Jesus wants to keep us in the elect few, right? Like, like it's so easy to think that that's what Jesus is doing. And I think the way this parable functions in this passage is Jesus, he's saying, whoa, 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 tap your brakes. If you think my intention Is to pull you 12 out and those with you out from the crowd and then give you insider knowledge. And we keep this insider knowledge to ourselves and we say to hell with the world. If you think that that's what Jesus is doing, Jesus says, whoa, you are completely missing what I'm doing. He actually says, now look at our passage, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So now now, now, think about it. In Jesus' day, they did not have these switches where you could just go back here, hit a light, and boom, the whole, the whole sanctuary just lights up. You had to go and get a lamp made of stone and made of clay and filled with oil, and you would light that wick, and they did not have central air conditioning, no electricity. And so if you wanted to light your, your home up, you had to go and light this, and then you would put this right here on a table or somewhere. Why? To light up the entire house. And here is what Jesus says. How foolish is it to think that we're going to light something up and then put it under a bed. That defeats the purpose of giving you light. You burn the house down, you put the light out. He says, rather we light things so that we can put things on full display, and in putting them on full display, we drive away darkness. Now, I think what's happening in the passage is look at the word secret. He says, nor is anything secret except to come to light. This isn't the first time we see secret in chapter 4 of Mark. Go back up to verse 11. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. But for those on the outside, everything is in parable. And then he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand How do these two passages link together? Jesus is giving light to the disciples. And light is understanding of who he is and what he's up to. And so he asks the question, do you think this is hidden and you get light for me to leave you in the darkness? And darkness is those outsiders who don't see, Or do you think I'm giving you light and insight into the kingdom so that you will put this light on display and let those who don't know me and don't see come to a saving knowledge of me? That's how this parable fits into the scope of Mark chapter 4. Now, why am I saying that this is not just a parable, but this is an overarching principle of the Christian life? Because... Jesus uses language like this all over Matthew and Mark and Luke. In Matthew, you know what he says in Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before who? Before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Same idea, phrase a little different. And it goes again later on in Matthew chapter 10. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, you say in the light. And what you hear whispered, you go proclaim on housetops. And do not fear the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You fear the one who can kill the body and cast thy soul into hell. You hear what? This is the principle. And what is the principle? The great kingdom privilege that we now have comes with kingdom responsibility. That's the principle that the grace that the disciples had of seeing And knowing and savoring and making sense of the kingdom that it was not for their benefit alone, but it would soon be for the good and glory of others. And so Jesus is in essence saying, I am not building a selfish family of followers who will turn in on themselves and take what they know and understand and exclusively use it for themselves. He is pouring into these disciples, giving them hidden knowledge so that one day he might reveal to the world what he is like and what he is up to through the disciples. You tracking with it now? Every truth we cherish, every doctrine we embrace, every grace given, every devotion we read according to Jesus is meant to be personally heard and personally believed and personally enjoyed and personally savored and then put on a public platter for a dying world to eat of. He's building a family of privileged people Who discover him in private and then steward that privilege in public no matter the cost that's the family principle that he's laying out kingdom privilege comes with kingdom responsibility the second thing I want us to work through is obvious family problems no family is perfect and the family that jesus is building is sort of a paradox have you read first corinthians and you read how the letter opens i paul write to you the church in corinth those holy in the sight of the lord and in one sense that is true they're holy They're they're declared righteous. They're indwelled by the Spirit. And then when you read the actual book, you're like, whoa, bro, did you make a mistake? Did you mean to, like, say that about them? They're taking—I won't go into all the detail, but that's the paradox, right? That's the paradox. The family that Jesus is building is both righteous and holy and acceptable and perfect, declared righteous— And we're broken and we don't get it right. Now, if that is an overarching truth, then here is how we have to approach this principle. We have to approach this principle. Kingdom privilege means and comes with kingdom responsibility. And it's important. And we have to also approach it. Oh, man. I also know my fallenness. Now, here's the thing about Jesus. When he commands something, he also commands it because he also knows that there is a propensity in us to not do it. And so when he commands, do not be afraid of him who can kill the body. Be afraid of him who can kill the body and cast thy soul into hell. Why would he spur us on in that way? Because he knows that when we have to speak to power, And stand before rulers and princes. And they threaten to behead us on account of our testimony to Jesus. He knows that something in us will cower under that fear. And so what he does with his word, he says, hey, let me tell you what's really going on. Don't be afraid of him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You speak my truth in his presence. Even if it costs you everything, I will resurrect you. And so you have to have that same approach when you read a passage like ours. When he says privilege comes with responsibility, we have to say, oh, we should expect to see people not stewarding this well. And it starts with the disciples. We're going to get there to Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. But if you want to go sort of put these two passages next to each other. You can clearly see what they wanted to do with this insider knowledge and insider power and insider revelation of the kingdom that they had. They said, Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and your left? That's what we want. Right. That's what they want to do with the privilege. Let me sit at your right hand and let me sit at your left. Jesus, can we be great in your kingdom? If you want to be great in my kingdom, he says, go serve. Jesus, let's kick away the little kids. In Mark chapter 13, he says, no, the kingdom is actually full of children. Let them come. Jesus, you want us to rain down fire on the Samaritans? He says, no, Jesus, we saw demons obey us and evil spirits come out of people with the power you gave us. He says, that is what you're rejoicing over? You need to rejoice that your name is written in Lamb's book of life, right? So what you get when you look at the, at the disciples is this paradox. They get it and then they don't get it, which is a segue for what we see in church history. You've heard about Christians killing Muslims. You've heard about holy wars. You've heard about a man by the name of John Calvin who's written the Institutes of Christian Religion, who's written commentaries on a lot of the Bible, and yet he condemns a man to be burned at the stake? How is it that you have all of this insider revelation and then practically speaking there's a disconnect? I got a few texts from a few people about a song that's on the Spotify playlist, and it's called Precious Puritans, and it's written by a man by the name of Propaganda. Here's the backdrop to that song. Propaganda is a spoken word artist, and he was a part of a church, and the pastor thought that the Puritans hung the moon that all of his books that he read and would refer to people were written by Puritans, and all of the people that this guy quoted were Puritans. And here's Propaganda, who is an African-American man married to a biracial wife. They're in this church, and he's like, yo, pastor, stop doing this. And that's the backdrop to the song. Here's what he writes. Oh, that we can go back to the America that once was founded on Christian values, you say. They don't build preachers like they used to, you say. Oh, the richness of their revelation. It must be nice to not have to consider race. It must be nice to have time to contemplate the stars Pastor, your colorless rhetoric is a cop out. You see my skin and I see yours, and they are beautiful, fearfully, and wonderfully, divinely designed uniqueness. Shouldn't we celebrate that rather than act like it ain't there? I get it, but your precious Puritans got it. But, and, and this is the key word how come the things the Holy Spirit showed them in the valley of vision? didn't compel them to knock on their neighbor's door and say, you can't own people. Hear that? Have you read the Valley of Vision? It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And they're actually beautiful. And he asked this question, how come the same people who wrote those prayers and got insider knowledge of the Spirit they were not compelled to go next door and knock on their neighbor's door and say, "You can't own people." You Hear what he's saying? You have light. You see the kingdom. And you're not shining in darkness, the darkness of American shadow slavery. You sweep it under the rug and you have your quiet time and you write your lofty prayers and it's not compelling you to go say anything or do anything. That's his issue with being a fanatic of the Puritans. Now, just when you think that he's just throwing bombs at Puritans, listen to how the song, this is the line of the song. There's not one generation of believers that has figured out the marriage between proper doctrine and proper action. He says, don't pedestal these people. Your precious Puritan partners purchase people. Why would you quote them step away? Think of the congregation that quotes you. Are you inerrant? Trust me, I know the feeling, the same feeling I get when people quote me like if they only knew. See, I get it but I don't get it, just go ask my wife and she'll tell you the truth. (laughs) You hear what he's saying? If you think it's just the Puritans who have a problem, propaganda actually says there's not one generation of Christians who have perfectly wedded what they see in the scriptures and how they live in reality. And he says, guess what? I don't even do it. You want to go, you say you want proof? Go talk to my baby mama. She'll tell you how I act at home, right? Why is that important? Because I want you to see the problems in the family, beloved. There's not one person, black or white, rich or poor, who walks this earth right now or 300 years ago or 400 years ago or 900 years ago who perfectly embodies this reality. And here is what this means. It means that in this room right now at 640 East Northside Drive, we are a room full of redeemed people who are also struggling integrationists. We get truth behind closed doors. And we make much of the gospel of grace behind closed doors. And in our quiet times where things are nice and safe and predictable, we savor the excellencies of Christ. And when it's time to get up and go out into the real world, we struggle. We're privileged to know Jesus. Privileged to have our sins atoned for, privileged to know the truth, privileged to see the kingdom. And then we twist privilege and think that we're at the center of God's saving activity. We twist privilege and won't forgive those who have sinned against us, though we have sinned against God and have received grace from him. We, 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 we twist privilege, though we believe the gospel and embrace it. We don't always live like it because we're selfish. And we are afraid of people. And we don't like to suffer. And we worship popularity. You see, I think when you take an honest assessment to this, seeing the problems in our family, I'm talking about the family of Jesus, it ought to make us more gracious with what we read in church history. It ought to make us more compassionate with the weaknesses we see in our neighbors. It ought to make us more tender with the way that we see those in this room right here and right now, who just seem to blow it sometimes. And it forces us to ask this question, do I integrate what I know and learn and love about Jesus in private, beyond my own mind and life and home? Or am I guilty of taking all of this light and all of what I see and putting it under a bed and not shining? And if we're honest, we're all guilty. Our final point is, where is the power for this type of living? I want to show you that. If you're not a Christian today and and the reason that you think you cannot completely get on board is because of this disconnect that we've worked through, then I want to be open and say, you got me. We're broken and we don't always get it right. And if you look at our lives, It's just not going to be what you would expect it to be. But what I do know about Christianity, at the center of Christianity, it is not Christians, it is our Christ. He is beautiful, and He is lovely, and He is gracious, and He is kind. And there is no disconnect with what he knew and what he did. If you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the most privileged person to ever exist. That when you look at what the author of Proverbs write about Jesus, Jesus says, ages ago, I was there. At the first, before the beginning of the earth, when there were no depths, no springs abounding with water, before mountains had been shaped, before hills had been brought forth, before the earth was made with its fields or the first piece of dust hit the ground, when the world, when the Lord established the heavens, I was there, when he drew the circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he assigned to the seas their limits, when he marked the foundation of the earth. I was there like a master workman. I was his delight, rejoicing before him always. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And without him, there was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. If you look at the Bible, the Bible will say that Jesus is the most privileged person person ever. He occupies a space of importance that no man or woman can ever occupy who can say that when the Lord made the heavens, I was there. When Adam and Eve fell, I was there. When the Lord came up with the plan of redemption, I saw that Adam would fall before Adam was even created. I was there. I saw when the Lord laid the foundations of the earth, I was there. What did Jesus do with his uniqueness and his privilege? Did he stay and boast of himself in glory? Or did he come to the earth? He was born, people. The person at the right hand of God, the father, decided to take on flesh and then to go and be born of a woman. And then she gave birth and you get this grand and public arrival of the Messiah. And he's there and his body occupied space. His voice broke and penetrated sound waves And he showed up and he went to the temple and was circumcised. And he went to all the Jewish feasts and made a public appearance. And then he was baptized in the spirit and clothed with power. And you want to know what Jesus did with this power? If I had the power he had, man, if I could like tell that tree to get up and go over there, If I could take rain that's falling and freeze it and stop it, I would like show off. And I would show off to myself just to show that I could do it, right? And here is what you see about the person and work of Jesus. Clothed with power and using power on our behalf. To raise the sick, to cast out demons, to restore sight, that he is stewarding everything he knows and everything he is for the sake of the other person. He moves towards the lost. He raises the dead, heals the sick, protects the vulnerable, sends corrupt religious leaders away, calms the sea, cries over the loss of a friend, brings disciples into his space to live with him. Skeptics loved him. Prostitutes loved him. Sinners loved him. Women loved him. Broken people who were outcasts loved him. And where we fall, right, with our racism... He says, I love Jew and Gentile. Where we fall with our sexism, I'm building a kingdom where there is no male, nor female, nor slave, nor free. We're one. Think about all the ways in which humans fall. And what you'll see when you look at the personal work of Jesus is he is beautiful and faithful until the end. And then he goes on a public trial. And his trial takes place in the company of hundreds of people. And he is crucified and strung out publicly on a cross. And he's beaten. Why? To put himself on public display to the world. I am the reconciler between God and man. I will perfectly obey where sinners don't. And I will perfectly take away the wrath of God. You want to ask me where the power for living like this comes? It does not come from you and I alone. It comes when we journey to the cross. And there we see our sins atoned for. And there we see the righteousness that God demands. Only there will we find our power. And here's the good news. They tried to keep Jesus down. The darkness tried to drive out the light, but Jesus really was like those birthday candles that you blow out. You think you can blow them out, and they just, them boys just light right back up. You blow them out and they come right back at that. That is, in a sense, what happened. Darkness tried to drive away the light, and three days later, the light shone forth, and he is alive and he is setting our lives on fire. That we who were cowards and failures might come to him and find grace and then be given this power and dwell by the spirit to read this principle and to say, yes, Lord, come what it may, but yes, Lord Jesus, And I love it that Jesus is actually being grace, being gracious to us by actually telling us this principle. You ever had a teacher who wants you to succeed? I mean, they really want you to succeed. Their desire is not to trick you. They want you to succeed. And so they give you the study guide and tell you what's going to be on the test. (laughs) That's what Jesus is doing in this passage, family. He says, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you how you're supposed to live. Take what I give you. Pay attention to it. My spirit is in you. Your sins have been atoned for. And he says, use it. To the measure you use it, more will be given and more will be added. For the one who has, more will be given. You hear what Jesus is saying? I'm going to enable you to do this by my spirit and by my word more and more and more and more. And so here's the question that I want to close with. What does this look like? I talked to Kelly this morning, Monaghan, and he has a sweet story of his father who went to be with the Lord yesterday. And Kelly said that one of the sweetest things that he heard was Kelly's dad is weeks from dying and he's in the hospital and he was sharing the gospel with his nurses. And Kelly got a video and on the video it's the man who Kelly's dad led to Jesus a few days ago. And he says your dad spoke truth to me, he told me about Jesus, and I was in a rough and hard place. That is letting your light shine, beloved. Someone came up to me, they were at the gym, and invited two strangers to church. That's letting your light shine, beloved. Some of you in this room are working with a family to rescue them and to give them grace. And you know who you are. And that is letting your light shine. That right now, there's a team of our people who left the comfort of Jackson to go down to Panama City, Florida, to help rebuild churches and homes and lives with the message of the gospel. And that is letting your light shine, beloved. What would our world be if we in this room committed to by the grace of God and the enabling of the spirit to leave this place and to let our lights shine? What a beautiful world this could be. And my prayer and hope is that we would let Jesus shine. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would allow us by your grace and by your spirit to steward the privileges and riches that we have of your kingdom accordingly. Father, our world is dark and it is hurting and people are in need of truth and light. You have a means to do that. Your people empowered by the gospel and dwelled by the spirit. Encourage as we read your word to live out this ethic in our homes and lives. Would you give us grace, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.